This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you would uh, grab your Bibles and uh, just go ahead and open them to the Gospels. The Gospels would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We'll be kind of jumping around there, um, several different places. But this is the third lesson. If you haven't been with us, this is the third lesson in our series that we're calling After We Fall Asleep. But as I've said, this series has nothing to do with falling asleep physically, like some of you probably will do in about five minutes. Rather, nearly 40 times, 40 times the Bible refers to death and dying as falling asleep. And so we're looking to the Bible to see what happens after we take our last breath. And just a quick review in our two previous lessons, we've talked about several of the upcoming events Two of them being the different judgments that the Bible refers to. One is what we call the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers, those who have not been saved, who are not saved. And, and more than likely, that judgment will determine the degree of eternal suffering. And then we talked about another judgment called the judgment seat of Christ, which will help determine the level of rewards that followers of Jesus will receive in heaven. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about heaven. What, what Linda's saying about, and, and the fact that heaven is not our default destination. We don't automatically go to heaven because we're Americans. Right? Is that right? We don't automatically go to heaven because we are Americans that stand for the flag and proudly say, one nation under God. We, we don't automatically go to heaven just because we call ourselves conservatives and pro-life and pro-traditional marriage. Going to heaven requires that we come to God and ask forgiveness of our sins and repent, which means doing an about face. You turn away from your sin. You don't stay in habitual and continual sins. But the good news is that even though heaven is not our automatic default eternal home, it is a place for whosoever will. Anyone, everyone that comes to Jesus will be saved and make their home in heaven. That should bring more than two amens. Amen? Amen. And then a couple of weeks ago, we also learned that the best part of heaven will not be the pearly gates, will not be the transparent gold, will not be the precious metals. It will not be your mansion over the hilltop and all that stuff that we sing about and talk about. Those will be breathtaking, but the best part of heaven, come up close. The best part of heaven will be seeing Jesus face to face and comprehending all of his glory. Because in the book of Exodus, God said, you can't look upon me and live. And so he was telling Moses, go bury your face in the mountainside. I'll put my hand. I'm going to pass by and I'm going to move it just a little bit. And you'll see just a little tiny bit of my glory. And remember, there was such a glow on his face when Moses came down the mountainside. The people said, we can't stand to look upon you. Put a veil over it. But in our new and improved bodies, we're going to be able to see Jesus face to face and comprehend his glory. Some of you old timers, uh, like you, Joe, and a few others, uh, you might remember the hymn that says, Oh, that will be glory for me. Anybody remember this hymn? Glory for me, glory for me, when by His grace I shall look on His face, that will be glory, be glory for me. 
that's enough of a, re of a review. And if you want to get in on, on the past lessons, of course, you can go to our website and pick up uh, all of those. Uh, just click and you will know where to go. Before we move into today's topic, could I tell you a joke? Uh, yeah, let me tell you. No comments from that section over there, okay? Let me tell you, yeah, it's a worn out, it's a lame joke. But there, there was a young lady who was wanting to get married. She didn't know what to do because her fiancé didn't believe in heaven or hell. And so she talked with her mom and said, I don't know what to do. I love him. I want to marry him. But he doesn't believe in heaven, doesn't believe in hell. What should I do? And, and the mom said, hmm. I think we can take care of that and said between the two of us I think we can convince him that both places are very real when you get married you convince him that heaven is real and then the future mother-in-law said and then I'll take care of convincing him that hell is real <laughs> totally lame totally lame okay I admit to that let's dig into the word um Sometimes I come to church bouncing, ready, so excited to share God's Word. And, but times like today, uh, there's, there's a heaviness. And uh, in our series today, we're going to talk about a place that um, it's not a place of rejoicing. And in our everyday conversation, it's mentioned way more frequently than heaven. In our daily talk with each other, it's... It's come to be used in many different ways. It's come to be used as a word of exclamation, a, a word expressing anger, a, a word expressing surprise. The word has become a filler word. You know, for example, people without even thinking about it will say, well, my day was hell. Or my tooth hurts like hell. And then I hope you don't say this, but... How many times do we hear others say, well, hell no? And, and think about it. When, when someone says that, when someone says, hell no, it doesn't make much sense, does it? And maybe it's just showing a, a deficient vocabulary, and so therefore we have to grab words like this to use as filler because we don't have a good enough vocabulary. Of course, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But for some reason, we tend to gravitate towards using this word in a casual way, in a lighthearted way, and many times in a very inappropriate way. But not only that, when, when it comes to this place, the matter of hell has also been used by pastors like me and, and a lot of parents like you to manipulate. You know, you better not do this or you're going to go to hell. How many times have you told your kid that? And of course, the fear of hell should be a motivating factor, but I think sometimes parents, and especially pastors, use this concept to bully, to manipulate, to scare. Now, the question I ask this morning is, why do we need to deal with this topic? Well, as I mentioned in, in, in our first Sunday in the series, what we believe about heaven, what we believe about hell, what we believe about the afterlife often determines the way that we live our lives on earth. Now, we're just kind of going to ease into our, our, our topic today, and let me share some interesting information that I came across. According to a study that, that involved a fairly broad cross-section of our country, 74% of those surveyed said that they believe in heaven. 
Yeah, that, that's impressive. As, as much of a melting pot as we have become for many world religions, to hear that basically three out of four people believe in, in heaven, it's pretty good. But, but listen, according to the same research, with the same people, remember, 74% believe in heaven, only 40% believe in hell. Which reinforces America's cafeteria version of Christianity. You know, I'll take the good stuff I like, and who doesn't like heaven? But I'll reject the bad stuff I don't like, and who really likes the concept of hell? Now, today, as, as we enter the, the study of, of, of God's Word, it's, it's going to be very, very, very basic. And I'm not going to be telling any scary stories. I'm not going to use any manipulative techniques with God's help. And I've been praying a lot about this. I want to try to stay with the word. We're going to stay with known facts from the Bible. But, but to get this ship moving in the right direction, let me just ask a couple of questions. And, and these questions are not to trap you. They're not to embarrass you. These are just questions out of curiosity and, and don't respond out loud. But here's the first question. Who is in charge of hell? And don't answer. Answer in your mind. Who's in charge of hell? Or today's terminology, we might tweak it and say, who is the CEO of hell? First question. Second question, who created hell? Or today, who is the founder of hell? Now, I I recognize that most of you are in the fast class and, and uh, you're above average in intelligence, but, but the average citizen across our country would have probably answered, well, Satan is in charge of hell and Satan is the founder or the creator of hell. But if you study the Bible, you see that Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan is not the, the creator. Satan is not the founder of hell. So, who created hell? Well, the Bible, get ready, the Bible clearly states that God created hell. Let that settle down on you for a little bit. God created hell. Which leads us to another basic question. Why would a loving God, why would a righteous God, why would a holy God create a horrible place like hell? Well, if we're bent on asking that question, then that shows how flawed our understanding is. It shows that we do not understand the holiness of God, neither do we understand the awfulness of sin. But let's talk about two biblical reasons why hell exists. The first one is is this hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. You see, most people think that Satan, you know, as the founder, as the creator of hell, he's the ruler of hell, and and they picture hell as, as this big area with a roaring fire, and out in the middle of this fire is a big throne where Satan is seated, surrounded by his imps and his demons and scary animals such as snakes and rats and cats and... You knew that was going to come in there somewhere, didn't you? 
And since they think Satan is the ruler of hell, as you make your entrance into hell, Satan will say in this booming voice, Welcome to hell! Where your worst nightmares become a reality, and maybe he'll laugh this devilish laugh. But, but again, it's important for, under, uh, for us to understand that Satan is not the creator of hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell. Rather, God created hell. Why? Well, one of the reasons was to punish Satan. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. So why does hell exist? It gives a place for God to deal righteously with the devil. But there's a second reason that hell exists. And and this one gets a little bit close to home. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with those. And this phrasing is interesting. I just grabbed it from the Bible, actually. Deal righteously with those who do not obey the gospel. I didn't make up those words. Listen to these verses in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He will punish those who do not know God. And here's what I grabbed out of the verse. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So, so hell is a, a place of punishment for those who do not choose Jesus. And, and this verse says that they will suffer everlasting destruction and be shut out. Shut out from the presence of the Lord forever. You know those times when you feel God's presence like we did this morning. You are shut out from the presence of the Lord forever. Now, to set up the rest of our study, I want us to take a few moments and unpack a very powerful story that Jesus told. And the story has two main characters, and it's frequently referenced for a study of this nature. You know the story. It's found in Luke chapter 16, and I I, I want you to follow along if you've got your Bibles. Let's meet the first player in verse 19, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man. So there's the first player, a rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in luxury every day. Now let's talk about this rich man. This, This rich man wasn't just regular rich. The original Greek language carries the meaning that this guy was mega, mega rich. And I don't know what his net worth was, but I was thinking this past week of some of the richest people in the world. And, and I realize it depends on the particular day, what happens to the stock market and all of that. But, but the last I read, just a couple of days ago, the richest man in the world was Elon Musk. And for those of you that uh, may or may not know this, he's the owner of PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla, uh, he owns a, a company that's got an interesting name called the Boring Company. It's an infrastructure tunnel company designed to solve traffic problems in metro areas. And then, of course, if you follow the news the last several weeks, Elon may, may possibly become the owner of Twitter, provided they can reconcile the, the Twitter spam bot situation. Or I, I learned that you also, they also refer to those as zombies. And if that information doesn't make sense to you, you can research it, or better yet, just not worry about it. But anyway, Elon Musk has a lot of money. And and I did some figuring with my calculator and and learned that if you had Elon's wealth and lived 50 years from today, and by the way, for some of us, that ain't going to happen. We ain't going to live 50 years. 
But let's say that you were going to live 50 more years with the wealth of Elon. And let's say that you were given the responsibility to, to spend all of his $224 billion worth of wealth. If his wealth would never increase $1 to spend down his wealth in the next 50 years, you would have to spend $15 million every day. $15 million every day for 50 years. That's having to spend, what, $1 million every hour and 30 minutes or something like that. Again, that's provided his wealth didn't increase. Now, all of that to say that we don't know the net worth of this man in the Bible, but, but he was rich, or as we sometimes say, he was filthy rich. He, he lived in luxury every day. And, and there's an interesting Greek phrase that in the original manuscripts of the Bible that, that further describes his wealth. It's, it's a phrase that could actually be translated to say, he ate the finest food every day. Now, Think of your favorite place to eat um, besides Simone's. Um, and I'm talking about the most expensive restaurant you could ever think of. Maybe one like in, in New York City that's called the Masa, M-A-S-A. Uh, it's considered to be the most expensive restaurant in the United States. And, and I read that the average bill is $1,300. That's the average bill. $1,300. But this is the, the context of how rich this guy this rich guy ate every day. He ate the best of the best of the best. Now, furthermore, if you looked at the scripture, it said that he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, in those days, clothing that was purple made you off the charts rich because to get purple clothing, it had to be infused with a special dye and it involved an extensive process and only royalty or the richest people had enough money to wear something that was purple. In fact, some scholars say that a single outfit of purple could have easily fed one person for an entire year. I read just in something that doesn't matter, but that the Italian brand uh, Gucci has the most expensive pair of basic blue jeans. Now, uh, obviously, there are jeans that are I've read where they've got diamonds in them, and I think $1.2 is what a pair of jeans went for. But, but just the most basic Gucci jeans are, sell, are said to sell for $600, just basic jeans, and makes my jeans on sale at Amazon for $22 seem pretty cheap. But anyway, this scripture is talking about a man who ate the finest of the fine. He wore the most expensive clothing, and so he was not just rich, but he was mega rich. He was filthy rich. He was loaded. That's our first character. You ready to meet the second character? We find him in verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar. There's the second character named Lazarus. And this is kind of gross, sorry. But covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Lazarus, in contrast to this filthy rich man, is also filthy but in another sense, he's a poor, filthy beggar. And, and Lazarus, according to Scripture, had some kind of a skin disease that caused him to be covered with open sores. And, and again, this is kind of gross, but it says that dogs came and, and licked uh, his sores. And, and I don't know why that man allowed the dogs to do that, except that possibly brought some relief or had a soothing effect. 
Now, now Lazarus was so poor that his food source ended up being the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And, and let me try to give a, a little bit of background. Sometimes when you know the background of, of Scripture, it just kind of opens up uh, the understanding a little bit more. But in those days, even rich people did not eat with silverware. They would eat with their fingers, with their hands. Which I hope that you know a good part of the world today still does that. I, in, in some of my travels, they will bring out the food, you know, rice and all, all kinds of stuff. And there's no fork, no spoon, no knife. You use your hands. And that's the way it was in this culture. They ate with their hands. And so after the meal, naturally their hands would be sticky and, and, and food covered. And, and they didn't have wet wipes back then. And so what would happen is that the servants for the rich people would bring in a loaf of bread. And those who had eaten with their hands, they would take this loaf of bread and begin just kind of wiping their hands off on the bread. Well, what would happen is that if you can see, there would be breadcrumbs that would fall into the plate there, the tray. And um, what they would do then, the servants would come in and they would take the crumbs and throw them out to the dogs. Or if there were beggars there, they would throw the crumbs and let the beggars pick up the crumbs off of the floor. Now, I want us to take note that it doesn't appear that this rich man was, was a bad guy. I mean, he was generous enough to allow the beggar to have the crumbs that came off of the bread when they were cleaning up. But a key point here is that despite the fact that the man seemed to be a decent man, he was generous. Yet his good works, his generosity did not translate into salvation. And so in this biblical account, he finds himself in hell. And it makes me wonder how many good and generous and kind and even moral people will not make it. Good people, good people. But they hadn't given their heart to Jesus. And they were relying on their works, on their goodness, on their kindness, their generosity to make it. Well, let's continue following the story. What happened to these two men when they died? Well, in verse 22, it says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, where is Abraham's side? Some translations say Abraham's bosom. Well, scholars believe that Abraham's side is the same place that Jesus called paradise. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and and he said to the sinner, you repented, so you will be with me in paradise. And So more than likely, Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom or paradise is what we call heaven. It seems that when a true Christian dies, they immediately go to paradise. They immediately go to heaven. Christ told the repentant sinner on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. This day, not later on. This day, when you take your last breath, you'll be with me because you repented. Now, remember that this will be prior to the judgment seat of Christ where the rewards will be handed out. But it seems 
to be the place that we call heaven. So Lazarus died, went to Abraham's side or paradise. What about the rich man? Where did he go when he died? Well, in verse 22, the rich man also died, was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, now the Greek word translated hell, and this is interesting. Again, just a little bit of uh, digging here. The Greek word for hell is the word Hades. Where is Hades? What is Hades? Well, Hades is the place that we refer to as hell, a a place of incomprehensible suffering. But please understand that Hades is not the final resting place for the wicked. Because we read in Revelation 20, 14, it says, and death and hell, which the Greek word here again is Hades, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But it appears that before wicked people are eternally cast into the lake of fire, they will first go to hell or Hades. And in the torment of Hades, Scripture says that this rich man looked across that great uncrossable chasm separating Abraham's side and Hades. And as he looked across there, he saw Abraham with Lazarus. Remember the beggar by his side. And in verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham. Have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Try to get the mental picture here. Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now try to try to catch the emotion and the pain here. I, I'm so thirsty. I'm so hot. Didn't ask for a glass of water. Said dip the tip of one finger in water, allow him to place that on my tongue. Please, Father Abraham, try to imagine that torment. Now, I want you to keep these two main characters close by. We're going to come back to them in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to go to a few other scriptures to see if we can get just a tiny glimpse of how horrible hell will be. And Matthew gives us a, a word picture to help us. In Matthew five twenty nine says, So if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, because we've all heard this verse, those of us that were raised in church, we've heard this many times. Many, many times we just scoot past the verse and don't think about it. So uh, please don't try this at home. But I want you to imagine taking your index finger and digging into your good eye and just ripping that puppy out. And then once you get it out in your hand, Go to the trash can, throw it away. The Bible says that the pain that would be involved in ripping your eye out would be more than worth it if it would keep you from lusting and keep you from burning in hell. Well, if that isn't enough, then the very next verse gives another word picture in verse 30. It says, and if your hand, even if it's your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. So imagine going to your dominant hand, which for me, it's my right hand, and going to a table saw or a chop saw and just whacking it off. And in Christ's day, of course, they didn't have a table saw or a chop saw, so they would probably take a piece of metal and start sawing through the flesh, get to your bone, 
It would take a while to get it off. But the pain of that happening, according to God's word, would be nothing compared to the pain of our eternity being lived in hell. And, and I know we don't like to hear this. In fact, when a preacher talks about this, and you know, I'll probably get this whenever you leave, we, uh, we hear, well, the preacher hellfire and brimstone dust today. And so without getting too graphic, but there's another scripture in Revelation that highlights the suffering in Revelation 10 or 14, 10. It says, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they will have no relief day and night for they've worshiped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. For those of you who have been to Yellowstone National Park, how many of you have been to Yellowstone and, and seen Old Faithful? And, um, or if you've been to Hawaii, uh, John, I'm sure you, you've seen that and uh, just, you know, driving along and, and all of a sudden there will be a hole with, with steam rising up. And, and if you go to that hole, you will smell burning sulfur. Sometimes it's almost like rotten eggs. And that's how Revelation 14 describes hell. Fire, burning sulfur. Now, now some of you are probably saying, Joe, uh, uh, you know, enough already. You've made your point. Quit freaking us out. You're scaring the kids and, and you're scaring me. But, but I think if the Bible gives us these vivid images, God obviously wanted us to understand that hell is not just like having a bad day. Hell is not just like having a bad toothache. Hell is a real place of suffering that goes beyond what we could ever imagine. Just a couple of more quick realities from hell. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen. then the king said to his aides, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into outer darkness. Catch that? Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and most pastors have let you know about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But did you catch those details? We need to catch that because some people joke and say, well, if I, if I go to hell, I'm going to have a lot of company there. I'm going to hang out with my buddies, we'll drink some beer, play some poker, we'll hook up with some women. Eh, it won't be too bad. But the Bible says that you will be bound hand and foot and thrown into a place of complete darkness. I mean, if you're afraid of the dark here, try to imagine total and complete darkness. And, and, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of partying going on if you're bound hand and foot and in total darkness. And then there's one more word that the Bible uses to describe hell, and it's used 13 times. It's the word Gehenna. And the background of this word is interesting. If you've been to Israel, uh, they probably pointed it out to you that south of Jerusalem there was a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And that valley became a place where they would throw the bodies of, of dead criminals and dead animals and, and garbage from the entire city of Jerusalem. And, and this was a place where the fire was always burning. In fact, the, the, the stench was so awful that a couple thousand years ago that it said that people wouldn't even come out of their homes there in Jerusalem if the wind were in a certain direction. You know, it reminds me of uh, some of the countries that, that do practice cremations, open cremations, and I remember a couple of times, two or three times when I've been to Nepal, that that, that was just such a pungent memory there as, as they were cremating people, part of their religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, and, um, and there you go, and there you've got the, the, the pyres, and, and, and they're burning there in the flesh, and, 
and uh, just openly, and, and, and that smoke just comes over you, and, and the stench of human flesh, and it's like, oh my word, and you go back to your hotel and think, how can you get this off? How can you get this off? Um, and so the Bible, 13 times, using this word, makes reference to a fire that will never go out. Now, let's come back to our, our, our two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, and try to learn some lessons here. Try to get this uh, plane headed down to land. But the rich man, remember how he was begging for a drop of water to cool his tongue. But something that breaks your heart is that in verse 26, as it's, it's as if reality sets in. And it's almost as if this man begins to realize, my destiny is sealed. I can't get out of hell. And so after the reality sets in, I want you to notice a stark shift in what is going through his mind. And frankly, I had never noticed this until preparing for this lesson. And we'll start in verse 26 so you can get the full impact. Um, Luke 16, 26. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go there from here to you can, uh, can, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So... The rich man learns that there's no escaping the suffering. But listen to what is on his mind right now. In verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father. Catch the words, I beg you. Send Lazarus to my father's house. Why? Because I've got five brothers. I've got family. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. You can almost hear the desperation. He says, I've got family that's lost. I love them. I don't want them to end up in hell like I did. And so he says, Father, would you please send Lazarus to warn them so they will not also come to this horrible place of torment? But listen to the response. This is just... Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What does that mean? Moses had died long before that. The prophets had died. What does this mean? Well, he's saying they have the scriptures because they called Moses at that time, you know, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It would be the scriptures of Moses. And then the prophets would have been, you know, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then, of course, you had the minor prophets as well. And, and, and so Abraham said, they've got the scriptures. That's, uh, that ought to be enough. But this rich man said no in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Can I just simplify these verses for Eldredo Springs, Cedar County, St. Clair County, Vernon County, those of us that live in the Bible Belt of the United States. Father Abraham, who is representative of God, says, Mr. Rich Man, no, I'm not going to raise Lazarus from the dead and send him to your family. And here's the reason. Your family already has the Bible. They can read the Bible. They can follow the Bible. Plus, They've had plenty of opportunities to hear about Jesus. They, they know other Christians. They, they have a church here in Eldorado Springs, you know, a church on most every corner. 
that they've had opportunities to hear the gospel, to be saved. And if they do not take advantage of those opportunities, it wouldn't make a difference if I would send Lazarus back from the dead to talk to them. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, if we would just see more miracles today, if we would just start this program, if we could just get so-and-so to go to this conference or even, I know they would come to God and, and God does use miracles, God does use programs, God does use conferences, may God help us to use every tool possible. But the truth is that every one of us in this com community, we've had many, many, many opportunities in which to find Christ. Believing with, beginning with Scripture. And I'm not one to judge, but I just don't believe that anyone, or let me back up, say I believe very few people from our community will have an excuse. So let's, let's wrap things up. Now you're ready, aren't you? <laughs> Again, no scary stories, no pressure tactics. We, we, we've tried to stay right by the word this morning. But I think we would all have to say that by the description in the Bible, hell is real. And hell is horrible. But I think that Satan has done a number on us and has convinced us that hell is no big deal. It's like a bad day or like a bad toothache. And if hell is no big deal, then two things happen. Number one, people easily reject or disobey Christ and His Word with no fear of judgment. That's why people do sinful things. They take God's name in vain. They act in wicked ways without fear of judgment. That's what Satan has done to us. There's no fear of judgment. But secondly, if, if we don't believe that hell is a big deal, then we become passive about winning people to Christ. You know, the concept of being lost forever just doesn't seem to have a lot of bearing on us. Somebody dies, yeah, they were rough characters, and bless their hearts, and that's pretty much it. We don't seem to fully understand the concept of lostness. And one last thing. Aren't you glad one last thing? But you've learned that when a preacher says one last thing, you know what it means? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> But this is what freaks me out about this topic. And as I studied this account, it freaked me out because I, I began to research who is Jesus talking to, you know, as he's giving this warning here, who, who's he talking to? And, you know, first of all, I learned that he wasn't talking to the tax collectors, which in today's equivalent might be serial killers, child abusers, drug, lord, drug lords. Jesus was not talking to the worst sinners. Jesus wasn't talking to the drunks or the prostitutes or the liars or immoral people, even though these people will need to repent in order to go to heaven. Do you know who Jesus was talking to? He was talking to church people like us. He was talking to those who claimed to know God, but they didn't live it. He was talking to people that were similar to the people in the scripture in Titus 1.16. They claimed to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. So as we close again, no scary stories. I've been asking God, how do you want me to close this service? 
And some of you are saying, just close it, brother. (laughs) But here's what I feel like that maybe the Lord wants us to do. I feel like that maybe God wants us to just pray for those that aren't ready to meet Jesus. I think if you're like me, you have friends, you have family that don't know Jesus. And I want us to pray that God would give us an opportunity to lead them to Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you to stand. And what I'd like for you to do, I'd like for you to focus on some people that need Jesus. And maybe there are some people here that you've got sin in your life and you need to pray and you're welcome to come too. But maybe there are some people here that you'd love to just come and represent some lost people in your family or in your circle of friends. I believe that God would be pleased for us to care enough to represent them. Would you just come right now and just stand here at the altar and or kneel, whatever you want to do, but just pray and begin to pray that God would reach our friends, our loved ones, people that need Jesus. Would you just come on right now? You know, I think that that's the way that God wants us to just wrap things up today because I feel like that maybe we've lost that sense of lostness and Could we just represent, could we just care enough to represent somebody right now? Here, let's pray together. Oh God, I want to just come to you. Lord, forgive us for those times that we've made light of this situation. Lord, we've made light of the concept of of hell and Lord, we've made uh, light of the fact that maybe our friends are going to hell and we kind of laugh about it. And, but Lord, I pray that right now, just like a dagger in our hearts, would you just bring us to our senses that, Lord, you've placed people in our lives, you've placed people in our hearts, God, that need the Lord and people need the Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that these people right now that are praying and oh God that if there's sin in their lives that they would confess and repent and turn and Lord for those who have just brought someone concerned God I pray that right now you would begin opening doors that you would begin orchestrating situations so that people in this community and maybe away from here that God they would be under so much conviction and Lord somehow through a divine set of circumstances. These people would be able to know that there is a God that loves them, that wants to save them from their sins. So Lord, I just pray right now that this week would be a turning point for some people that they would seek Jesus. And God, I pray that there would be a revival, as Jeremy talked about, revival within our kids' department, that there would be revival in this church and in every church in this community. And Lord, that it would spread out of this community, but it would go elsewhere. But Lord, I pray that we would be part of just seeing revival uh, turning to God. So Lord, we just pray again that you would zero in those that need Jesus. And Father, we thank you. We thank you even though this topic is not one where... 
it was easy to say amen to, yet, Lord, you deal with this topic so clearly in your word, and I pray that you would also deal with our own hearts. So thank you, Father. We love you, and we entrust our prayers, our burdens to you, and we ask that you would give us souls for Jesus. Thank you again for caring enough to warn us of this place. And thankfully, Lord, we don't have to fear this place because as Linda sang, Lord, there is another place and we can have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We don't have to live in fear. We can live in confidence and know and know and know that we know that we know that our heart is right with Jesus Christ. Make sure, Lord, that we are to that point. Lord, thank you again for visiting us today continue to just linger among us, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. And by the way, just in case you think that your pastor doesn't love you, you got another thought coming. I love you. And uh, if you have any needs, if you want to talk with a staff member, a pastor, or find someone you've got confidence in, you need to talk today or this week, make sure that you seek them out. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.